Welcome to the Buckeye Beef Bite. This is episode six of our winter 2021 series of interviews with beef industry specialists at OSU and in Ohio. In this episode, we interview Stan Smith, program assistant with OSU Extension in Fairfield County, and the editor of the Ohio Beef Newsletter. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Clifton Martin returning with another episode for our podcast series we are bringing to you from the OSU Extension beef team here in winter 2021. Uh, we've been hard at work on a series of six episodes, and you can find more of these episodes at the OSU Extension Beef Team newsletter at beef.osu.edu. And of course, check the, the links in our show notes for any resources and, and other information uh, that, that we provide. As always, I'm joined by Garth Ruff, OSU Extension Beef Specialist, and today we are joined by Stan Smith, who many know as the editor and person who sends out the Ohio Beef Newsletter every week into our inbox. Welcome, Stan. Thank you. How are you guys doing? We're doing pretty good. Um, we've kind of been throwing the same general set of questions out to several of our guests. It, I mean, it varies a little bit from guest to guest, but uh, you know, as we get started, we always start right at the beginning with a little bit of an introduction. And we're interested interested to learn a little bit more about you, uh, who you are, where you work your role with OSU and uh, any other tidbits that you want to share with us? I can do that. I, I'm Stan Smith, um, lifelong resident of Fairfield County, born and raised here and, and uh, uh, living on the, the farm that, that uh, my great grandparents actually bought some time ago. And uh, ancestors actually settled on the banks of the Sycamore Creek up the road here. Oh, and what? 1826 or something. So I've been around for a day. Um, I, I farm and uh, was farming when they called from the extension office in Fairfield County and they said, Hey, we got a, we got a project going on. We got some grant money and uh, we're, we're going to be looking at financial long-range planning. It's in today, it's something similar to what Diane Shoemaker and her crew were doing, but they said, uh, would you be interested? And I was farming full-time at the, at the time, but had some time in the winter. And the thing that, that motivated me the most about that was this was in the middle eighties when personal computers were first coming out. And I had one and I taught myself about as much as I thought I could teach myself. And I really wasn't into going to classes and they were going to give me a portable computer to use for this program if, if they hired me. And I said, yeah, let me try this. And uh, I figured Ohio State would teach me how to run this computer and take me to the next level and doing some programming and what have you. So they give me this portable computer that was the size of a new uh, uh, suitcase. And the rest is history. Um, work in the Fairfield County Extension Office. Back then I was covering two or three counties and did that for a couple of years on that project. And then uh, the grant money dried up and, and our extension educator at the time was Jim Skeels and he was wanting to go back to school to get his PhD. So they need a little extra help. They said, would you be interested in hanging around and doing some things? So I did that. So I actually started with OSU Extension as an employee in, in uh, 1988 and had a, about a year and a half, two years 
of working as a contractor with that uh, long range planning program. So um, I'm still here in Fairfield County, still farm. Uh, most of the, the farm activity is me trying to keep up with uh, one of the older boys that, that does the majority of the work. But uh, since we've been sequestered here at home for the last 10 months, um, it's been kind of nice. I, I get more exercise now than I have in 30 years by getting out to do the feeding in the morning and again in the evening. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's been a good, good combination and a good run. Sandy, you've certainly seen a lot over the years and, you know, it, uh, it's one of the more seasoned extension personnel. Um, <laughs> yeah. How has extension extension changed over the years and how is the, how did the Ohio beef news come about and how has that newsletter changed in your time? Well, back when I started, a lot of what I was doing there in 88 was weekly news column. We started a monthly newsletter and the extent of our communications from extension was basically either paper newsletters or a weekly news column or they could contact us on the phone. We, we didn't have email in the office. There was no such thing at the time. And, and other than them calling us or us writing them in a newsletter, that was our communications. So we would have winter meetings. And back then, winter meetings were probably a lot more popular than they are today, or at least they were until the pandemic closed all those down because that was an opportunity for guys to get together. So we would, uh, we would find a sponsor in the winter to uh, a, a, a company, an ag company would put up the money. We'd have a lunch and we'd have all day meetings that went on for four five, six hours. And we, we evolved into pesticide recertification, those sorts of things. And we'd have specialists down to speak in that. And that was our entire form of communication. Um, today we still do a lot of that. Um, we, we don't do many paper newsletters anymore, but I've got guys that we communicate via text, via email, social media. Of course, the beef letter transitioned to nothing but an online publication. And we're using technology, YouTube, short videos and all that stuff. And guys say, man, the technology ought to make it a whole lot easier. Well, it does make it a little more timely than a newsletter that gets lost in the mail or a news column that can only come out once a week. But the expectations for timely communications from producers today is just clean through the roof. I mean, if something's happening and breaking, um, they expect to hear about it very quickly. And like I said, I got some guys that don't like email. So I have to text them. I got others that are religious social media folks. So we hit them up with either Facebook or Twitter and uh, others still like to do email. So that's, that's kind of where that is. And, and uh, we were, when Jim got done with his PhD, he was back in the office and we were needing to, to keep busy and find things to do. And our, our commissioners blessed us with a lot of funding. So um, by this time, shortly after that, Jim had moved on. We had another fellow that was our, our educator in the office. And, and I said, I, I'm going to start a, a little newsletter for a cattleman. 
And so it was a paper thing. The internet was just getting started in the, in the mid to late nineties. And so it was a paper thing. And I had about 25, 30 local guys that I was sending it to every week on paper. And I would put it together, um, used a lot of OSU folks and what I could find that was coming from specialists. And it was all coming to us in paper in those days and put it on the paper and, and we'd, uh, mail it out once a week. And then a couple of years later, as the internet had evolved a little bit, and we started to post it a little bit online. The beef team met and said, we, we think we need a, a regular newsletter. So they adopted it as their newsletter. And from there it began to expand. And, and uh, we quit the paper thing very shortly after that, because it became cost prohibitive to, to send it out over the place as, as numbers grew. So it's been uh, totally an internet publication and um, goes out the announcements about it via email. And over the years, it's grown to the point where we're something over 5,400 subscribers now. That's a, a pretty large subscriber base. I think that's something that, um, you know, for those of us internally, it's something that we're, we're quite happy about. Um, you also indicated it's the, the 25th year of publication, I believe. Yeah, I think we started in, uh, what, 97, 98, something like that. And uh, it's interesting, the fellow that was our ag educator at the time when I was doing this thing, he says, is there really anything going on with beef cattle that needs to be talked about every week? Is there that much to do? And I said, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. And we've we've averaged a little over 50 issues a year. We usually miss at least one week or two, maybe over the holidays or, or uh, during our county fair, it's tough to get one out, but we've, we're up to what issue number 1225 recently and are averaging about, about 50 a year. And there is always something that's timely in the beef cattle industry, no matter what time of year it is. And, uh, it, it seems like there's always a crisis on the horizon. There's always something new and different. There's a some nugget of information that that needs to go out. And we've we've been fortunate. We've worked with a lot of uh, not just Ohio um, Ohio State University Extension authors and folks, but we've developed a relationship with some other folks in other states that have also um, support this regularly. Kenny Burdine is going to. Uh, going to be on one of our our webinars this winter, and uh, Kenny is. And we've usually got him in there once or twice a month. So uh, he and and several others from around participate. Les Anderson uh, did his grad work at Ohio State. Uh, now down at the University of Kentucky, we get a lot of good reproductive information from Les. So a lot of examples of relationships we built with folks. Uh, not just in Ohio, but around the state over the years that have contributed to the to the latter. Stan, you mentioned a couple of different researchers and you know from Ohio State or elsewhere that contribute to the letter. Um, you know, in twenty five years of putting that letter together, have you seen the research related to beef cattle change at Ohio State um, or or you know across the region to meet the demands of our producers? And you know, is there anything? You know, we always involve and approve practices and processes, but is there anything that's really different um, that we communicate today that maybe we didn't do 25 years ago? Hmm. 
Well, back when I was getting started, we were just getting into grazing management and it was in its infancy, really, as far as talking about it and teaching it. And uh, Daryl Clark was the first fellow from Extension. He was a Muskingum County educator at the time. And he was the first guy that I ever heard do a presentation on grazing management. So we were doing some of that. Uh, Steve Lurch had done a lot of work with uh, feeding whole shelled corn, not just in the feed yard, but also uh, to brood cows, was replacing corn or hay with that uh, in times of shortage. So there was some of that going on. And uh, other than that, there wasn't, uh, wasn't any real hot buttons, but since then grazing management has become one of the hottest topics that we talk about. And it's not just that we've really gotten deep into the science of it and not just traditional grazing management out in pastures, but we've done a lot of work um, over the years, last 15 years. And I call that recent years with uh, annuals, fitting those into the, uh, the rotation, the, the grazing rotation. We've done a lot of work with warm seasons that we weren't doing at the time. And we figured out how to fit those in. So that was that, you know, that's one thing that's evolved. The, the other thing that's probably the biggest new and different thing is, is uh, we had Mike day here for several years and now we've got Alvaro here. And um, I mentioned Les Anderson did his, his grad work here and it was all in reproductive physiology and we've gone from a time when all we had to synchronize estrus was MGA as a feed additive. We'd feed it for two weeks and, and do some things. And then we evolved to where we had a product called Synchromate B, where you had to stick it in their ear. It was an implant. And then you had to dig it out, which was not the most friendly thing for cows. They didn't really like it to the point where we finally got cedars. And reproductive management has really grown and a lot of the research right here at OSU is is what's moved that to the forefront. You see a lot of the projects that Mike Day and, and Les Anderson worked on and since then Alvaro um, have really enhanced the opportunity to be using artificial insemination in beef cows. And those programs work today so well that we're to the point where we're nearly using sex semen at the same success rate as traditional semen. We're using um, time breeding at nearly the same success rate as natural service. And that's, that's crazy. Uh, so the, those are, are two of the big things that evolved over time. Uh, since we started making a lot of ethanol. I know we've done a lot of work with distillers and how to fit those, that into the ration. And that's something that we wouldn't even have talked about 25, 30 years ago. There was guys were using some brewer's grain, especially here around central Ohio from the uh, Anheuser-Busch plant up in Columbus, but not like the distillers that we're using today. So uh, I know a lot of that work has been done, some of it over at Eastern uh, Amy Redunz, I remember doing some projects over there on feeding distillers to, to call cows. So um, feed management and reproductive management are, are probably two of the biggest research things that, that I'm aware of. And I, I'll, I'll be real honest with you. I'm not aware of all the research they've, they've done 
because sometimes we, we struggle to get it out into the county, especially if it's not the type of thing that's really moving the needle on, on production practices. Yeah, it sounds like certainly been, you know, takes the researchers uh, here at the university, but it also takes, you know, some progressive producers uh, to make things happen. Uh, and that might kind of lead us to the next question here. You know, as you look at the beef industry as a whole, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, with the beef newsletter and extension and farming there in Fairfield County, what are some strengths, opportunities and, and or challenges uh, that you see here in the state? I've said before that one of the, the greatest assets that we have is the abundance of feedstuffs. And we have all kinds of different feedstuffs. Um, we grow lots of corn and in years where we can get on those fields, that allows us to graze lots of corn residue. Um, we, we have several ethanol plants, so we have distillers grains available. From a marketing standpoint, if you didn't believe it before, after what we've experienced the last 10 months, the opportunities for marketing directly to the consumer in a very populous state like Ohio are endless. And I think that what that does is it really makes it available to some of our smaller producers who sometimes feel like, gee, I get left in the dust because I can't put together pot loads of calves or I, I'm not feeding enough cattle to sell on a pot load basis, or, or maybe I don't feel like I can contract them because I'm not doing enough. Well, the opportunities with all the, the urban, I, urban population that we have to market directly to those and with what's happened in the last 10 months with our supply chain issues, it really makes it an opportunity for the smaller guys here in Ohio to find niches that work for them, whether it's, it's, it's grass fed, whether it's just um, home raised direct from the producer. We've got some guys that are selling parts and pieces and we've got enough little packing plants around that they, they can do that legally, get them inspected and sell uh, parts and pieces or boxes of meat. Um, we can sell quarters and halves, obviously. And because of our extreme diversity, I really see it as a benefit. The average cow herd in Ohio is, is about 16 cows, and it's really tough to market feeder calves effectively when you've got 16 cows and you get 14 calves and half of them are bulls and half of them are heifers. And I wanna save some of my heifers, but it, it puts us in a place those guys can do some things that the larger producers can't do. It, it's tough from a time management standpoint, as well as a, a logistical standpoint to get freezer beef into folks' hands. If you're focused on, on doing pot loads of cattle and, and sort one out and get it to the, the little packer. But I, I think it diversity is our greatest asset. You can, be in Ohio and you can be a player in the beef cattle industry any way you want 
from any number of different ways. You can be seed stock producer. And then there's that word called club calf producer. We've got lots of kids showing cattle. And while, you know, there are varying degrees of acceptance of our, is club calf production really beef cattle production? Well, of course it is. And we've got opportunities there for guys to add some value to calves because of, of the urban population and the tremendous interest there is in showing beef cattle here in Fairfield County, our, our youth exhibitor beef numbers have gone up something like uh, seven or eight years in a row. We've got the highest number of kids participating right now that we've had since uh, 2008. So there's, there's growth in that. And it, it is a segment of the industry. Then you take the, our dairymen, um, our small dairies, many of them have gone by the wayside, but our larger dairies are now learning to use uh, beef sires on their dairy animals. So there's opportunities there for guys to be taking bottle babies, going to the next level with them. Some of those bottle babies now are half-bloods that are maybe a little more desirable than, than what all the ones they did before. So I think actually being close to an urban population, being varying into size and and having all the different feedstuffs available gives us a flexibility that we can find a niche and a way to fit into this industry if that's what we're interested in. If I can piggyback on, <clears throat> excuse me, if I can piggyback on something you said there, um, you talked about the growth in your, your youth uh, showing livestock and getting involved in club animals. Um, one of the questions we've asked a few folks, um, uh, is just as we, you know, you've been working in agriculture for a long time. Uh, we, we know that in agriculture as well as other industries, right. There's, there's a lot of folks who are nearing retirement. They'll be exiting soon. Uh, and then there's always this question of who, who's coming next, right? Who's, who's going to be farming next and who's taking over the farm. And, um, you know, just what, what's the opportunity and, and, and how are they going to do it? And, and I guess one question we have is, is, um, what do we tell someone, a young person who, who's maybe thinking about farming, dreaming about farming, maybe trying to figure out how to get over some hurdles to, to get into it. You know, there, there's a wide variety of, of scenarios, I'm sure, but, um, you know, what are, what are the opportunities to bring people, young people onto the farm to kind of take over and to succeed as a, a beef producer? Well, the, the opportunities are there. The structure of the family farm has changed. Uh, back in the day, it was kind of a, a, a fella had two sons and each son had his own farm. And today that structure may be the father and the two sons are all working together. So it's a larger unit and they're capturing economics of scale. But at the same time, those units are hiring help. And depending on what segment of the industry a younger person wants to get involved at, there are opportunities at every level. The most important thing is that they have energy and that they truly want to do the work and spend the time that it takes, that they have the ability to listen 
and learn and accept the fact that things are evolving and changing. But I, I think there are opportunities at every level. It's just the most important thing is they've got to love it and they've got to love it enough that they want to put in the work that it takes and the hours that it takes to do it. It's, it's never been nine to five. It's never going to be nine to five. And those who are successful are going to spend the extra time. It's the same with any business. It's not just agriculture and it is very competitive. I, it's not the most popular statement that I've ever made, but I'm, I live by it. There are folks that worry about an aging farm population and, oh, my goodness, how are we going to get this ground farm? Nobody's coming in. There will not go be an acre go unfarmed. I don't care how old or how young you are. If it's profitable and there's an opportunity, it will get farmed. I've yet to see an older fellow retire that his farm wasn't rented or purchased. It's not going to happen anytime soon. It isn't going to happen in my lifetime or your lifetime or your kid's lifetime. As long as there's demand for food, acres will be farmed. They'll be farmed differently. And some young people might have to accept the fact that they're going to do, uh, if they enjoy it, they might do it in a, in a, a, a structured environment, like a greenhouse. Um, you know, the days of, of putting together two, three, 4,000 acres for a young person have probably passed. But if you find a niche that you enjoy, um, if you aren't, even if you aren't born into it, if you get the experience, you find the niche that you enjoy and you work it, I have all the confidence in the world that you can be successful. Um, one of the things that we've been told over the years in extension is how many acres you need to be successful and how many cows you need to have to be successful and, and how many sows we need to be farrowing. I don't, I don't subscribe to some of the numbers that they put out. I've, I know, and I observe, and I've seen some very successful younger people that are farming full time and doing it on five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred acres, but they're diverse. They're taking advantage of a variety of opportunities. They're not going back to the diversity that my dad and grandpa had where they were milking a few cows. They had 15 or 20 sows. They had some lambs. They had chickens. They sold the extra eggs to the creamery and all that. We're not to that type of diversity. But when you think about the opportunities available to do value added for um, 10 or 15 or 20 freezer beef a year and some other things, if you enjoy doing that, the opportunities are there. It's just a matter of getting after it and getting it done. Well, Stan, I think we've certainly covered a lot of ground. Uh you know, and as we kind of wrap up here, uh, of course, we got some beef programming uh, continuing here uh, throughout the winter, some different webinars. Uh, and as Clifton mentioned earlier, you can look those up at beef.osu.edu. Uh, kind of to wrap things up here, you know, as you put the newsletter together, uh, maybe something to leave our cattlemen to look forward or to think about here in 2021 for just one thing 
uh, you know, you could offer there. Uh, what would that be? Oh boy. I don't know. I, I think as much as anything, getting back to a normal life. <laughs> we've had three of the most difficult winters that I can remember in my lifetime. And I remember hard snowy winters. They were nothing compared to the mud we've dealt with the last three winters. And we've got solid footing. Now we've got some green grass out there in January. Um, I'm excited about moving forward, getting back to a place where we don't have to worry about whether we've got a mask in a pickup truck to run in and get a get a part for the combine or the baler or something. And I think the biggest thing to look forward to is, is maybe we're going to get back to some normalcy. And at the same time, I think the opportunities that we've got with, with uh, direct marketing to consumers are going to remain for a while. Early on, I figured this pandemic would come and go in a few months and everybody would go right back to the regular old meat case. And I don't think that's the case anymore. There's going to be demand for our product and they want to buy it right off the farm. And so if we treat these people right, I think we can develop relationships that will last for maybe our lifetime and maybe our kids' lifetime. And we are not going to drift back to the only place you can buy a steak is from Kroger and G. I don't know where they got that. That I figured they just manufactured it. But I, I think people are have, have gains of respect for an industry because of some of the shortages that they saw when they went into the meat case and saw, oh my goodness, it's not here. It always has been. So I, as I look forward and, and I challenge folks to look forward, I would say um, look around, look, learn from what we've experienced, learn from what others have experienced. You don't have time to make all the mistakes yourself and, and uh, take advantage of these opportunities and enjoy them and embrace them for the, the coming months and years. Well, very good. Yeah, with that, Stan, we uh, appreciate those comments. I think we all absolutely echo a return to normalcy as soon as possible whenever we can get there. Maybe, maybe by the time we uh, uh, broadcast this out across the beef newsletter, we'll be a little bit closer. So we appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat with us. And uh, as always, um, you know, really everything we've talked about here is up on that beef newsletter. You dot or uh, OSU dot. Oh, I'm getting it all mixed up here. Beef dot OSU dot edu will be the website there. And uh, with that, uh, we'll we'll sign off and say goodbye. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can find more from the series at the OSU Extension Beef Team newsletter at beef.osu.edu. We appreciate your suggestions and comments, and we always appreciate feedback on our work, and you can provide that using the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to the Buckeye Beef Bite.